I wanted to ask you now to turn with me to your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 4, 6. As we begin that, you'll notice I just lit the Christ candle this morning. We were going to light them all, and then we realized Christmas is over, but Christ remains. Uh, I was whistling on my way through the halls at work on, on Friday, and the reception, I was whistling, uh, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, don't ask me why. And the reception said, Christmas is over, no white. I'm like, yeah, no white for the new year either, that's good, but Christ remains even if Christmas is gone. So I ask you to stand with me now as we read together from God's word. I'm actually going to start at verse 17 because it really is the pivot and the focus of the entire passage, both what we looked at last week and, of course, what we'll look at this week. Hear now the word of God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as, <clears throat> as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants, your slaves, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. <clears throat> Let's bow together as we begin. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. For the word made flesh, Jesus the Christ, who has come to bring light into our world, to bring salvation. And we thank you for your word revealed that speaks to us of your character, of your grace and mercy. And so this morning, as we hear your word, both read and proclaimed, Lord, be present with power in that word. You have promised that it will not return to you void, but will accomplish that for which you have sent it. And so we pray you might work that work in us which you intend for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So this is the Sunday that we typically uh, should be preaching on New Year's resolutions. But I thought it might be better to resolve, rather than particular things which we will find ourselves failing in before we know it, to resolve in a much in a much greater way. I've entitled my messages the last two weeks, True Spirituality 2022, part one and now part two. And I think that, that that is really the, if you will, the resolution for the year, and if we be honest, for the rest of our lives, that, that we would live in true spirituality. And as I mentioned last week, I, I define that as 
intentional application of Christian faith to the practical demands of life. Intentional application of Christian faith to practical demands of life. That that the abundant Christian life will absolutely depend on maintaining uh, orthodox Christian belief, the, the foundation of our faith. I shared with you last week the illustration from Kathy's My Time in Libri. We had, I'd become a Christian uh, around, actually it was Easter time, and uh, we were on our bikes in early May and invited home with a fellow. And as he shared the dinner with us, he was you know, getting to know us. And I said, well, we had just come from Libri, which was a Christian study community. Uh, in Hampshire, and that I come to know Jesus as my Savior. And he said, that's great. He said, I think everybody should believe something. I, I don't think it matters what it is, but you should really believe something. And I kind of let that go. Okay, you know, I'm a guest. But a little while later, as he continued to prepare the meal for us, he said, I just don't understand this neighbor of mine. And then he went on to decry this newcomer in the community who seemed to be very, very antisocial. He barricaded a a drive that people used to be able to walk through the countryside and a number of other things. And finally, Bob, my host, said, you know, I just, I don't get this guy. I don't understand what he's thinking. What does he believe? And I said, Bob, you know, if you'll permit me, a little while ago you said it really didn't matter what you believed as long as it was sincere. And he stopped me. He said, no, no, no. He said, I, I meant that in, in politics and religion. And, and then he stopped himself and he said, I guess it does make a difference what you believe, doesn't it? I didn't even have to preach the sermon. He preached it to himself, you know. I guess it does make a difference what you believe, doesn't it? So <clears throat> in light of that, I want to talk this morning, three points. You've got your bulletin outline there to follow along. <clears throat> and the first one is that the true spirituality is grounded in our relationship to Jesus. True spirituality is grounded in our relationship to Jesus, that that. As Paul declared Jesus Christ, him risen from the dead, um, and ascended into heaven, it was a person that he declared, not a, not a religion, although we call Christianity religion, but he was not declaring religion as the ancient world understood it, or even as our modern world thinks of it. He was declaring a relationship with a person, with, with the risen Christ. Uh, <clears throat> that relationship isn't accomplished through anything that we do it's not our quote religious practices it's not some kind of inner mysticism it's it's not a feeling that makes us all tingly it is the declaration of a person who actually lived and died and raised and ascended so i ask myself as we begin on that ground if true spirituality is grounded in our relationship to jesus what is the passage beginning with verse one tell us about Jesus. And if you have your Bible, turn, we're going to jump just back into chapter 2, verse 20. I'm going to do a little systematic theology with you here this morning. Paul says, if with Christ you died. So obviously part of the declaration of Jesus is that he has died, and he must therefore have lived, right? You've got to have a living person in order to die. And if you look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, you know, that is Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. And he sets it in a historical point in time, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, and at a historical geographical place, you know, in Bethlehem of Judea. So, so Jesus is a real person who lived and died. 
And Paul then begins his exhortation, if you will, to the church on the basis of if with Christ you died, and included in that is all of that. And then he goes on to chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Okay. He is raised, and, and therefore, as we will even recognize this morning at the table, he, if he is raised, he must have died. And the question arises, you know, in perhaps Paul's hearers, ears or mine, in our hearers today, why? Why must he have died? And as John the Baptist said in seeing Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ died for our sins. Romans 10, 9, as Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he lived, he died, he was raised, he died for our sins. Paul says again in verse 1 of chapter 3, he is seated at the right hand of God. He is in the position of power and authority. And in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, we find that in Acts chapter 2, he declares to the Israelites, to all those who are listening, that, that Jesus being raised is now exalted at the right hand of God, and God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Christ lived, died, raised, ascended, is now Lord and Christ, ruler over all. And Paul goes on to say then in verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. He is king and judge of all, and when he comes, there will be judgment. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. There will be judgment to all on the basis of their works before Jesus Christ. So, a real human person who lived and died for our sins, was raised from the dead, was ascended into heaven, where he sits to intercede and will one day return to bring judgment upon an unbelieving world and to bring glory to those who have accepted him as Savior and Lord. That's the beginning of true spirituality. It is grounded in our relationship to Jesus. But then we go on to say, as we move closer to the passage today, that, <coughs> excuse me, that, that our relationship to Jesus is to ground all of our relationships. That's my second point this morning. Our relationship to Jesus is to ground all of our relationships, that, that it is foundational to everything else that we do. That, that when we set our minds on him, which is what Paul exhorts in the first 17 verses, set your minds on things above, seek the things that are above, you know, put away the things of earth, that focus on Christ, come to know him as Lord, and that way you will grow both in learning how to live for him and, and learning to know him. And in learning to know him, we will learn how to live for him. And that's what we will cover as we move to the third part. But, but right now... Paul, in the beginning, as we went over last week, says, put to death in verse 5, verse 8, put away, put off the old self. All of these things we're called to get rid of. It is, it is interesting, uh, as Paul says the things we are to put away, um, we are to put away greed, 
excuse me, uh, in verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry is to worship another god. And if you look at the things that Paul says to put to death, they are all things that pursue some alternative way of having life, of filling your life with meaning or purpose. All of these things ultimately are expression of the human desire to have life on our own terms. Which, if you think back to the Garden of Eden, is precisely what Satan presented Adam and Eve with. Has God really said, no, 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 you can be as gods. You can dictate life on your own terms. You, you can decide what is right and what is wrong. And so all of these pursuits, Paul says, ending in covetousness, which is the desire to have something that you don't have, either something that belongs to someone else or something, in this case, that belongs to God alone that this idolatry must be put to death, must be put away, that we have to deal with the impulses in the context of life's demands that, that would urge us, as Satan urged Adam and Eve, to decide for ourselves what is right, what is wrong, where is life, and how do we gain it. So if we are to put to death what is earthly, all these things which are idolatry, It says to us that Jesus, and he alone is God, he alone is worthy of worship and praise. We are to hold fast to him only as the center of our joy, as the focus of life. In fact, as the very source of joy and of life. As as Psalm 100 says, we are to enter his courts with thanksgiving and his gates with praise. And that's why I focus back on verse 17, and I've used that in the bulletin as the text, even though it's outside of the parameters of today's passage, that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. And and the core of this is gratitude. Again, as we learn what Jesus did, as as we understand who he was and what he did, then our hearts should be filled with gratitude. From him we have life, life abundantly, as he says in, in John 10. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And when we understand this, we, we can't help but live in gratitude. And, and Paul has says as much here as he focuses on gratitude in, in verse 15. Be thankful in verse 16. With thankfulness sing. <clears throat> verse 17, give thanks to God as we, as we go about life. G.K. Chesterton has says this. Gratitude, he says, quote, is nearly the greatest of all human duties and nearly the most difficult. Sometimes it's hard to be thankful. Sometimes it's difficult, nearly impossible. But gratitude is the greatest of all human duties. How, in fact, can we not be grateful to a God who has given us so much? And so again, true spirituality is, is living by grace through faith in Christ and making him the center and focus of how we relate to one another and to the world around us. And when we do that, when we have true spirituality in that sense, when Jesus is the center and focus, then we'll see it in a holy life, which is what Paul has exhorted upon the believers in those first eight verses. And and we will have a, a united congregation, a body of believers who, embracing these things, all seek to serve the risen Christ with their lives, no matter what their calling is. We will have, as we will see today then, uh, the happy Christian home 
we will have a faithfulness in work and an effective witness in the world around us. And all these things come as a result of relationship to Jesus. Again, my point, our relationship to Jesus is to ground all of our relationships. So, to the practical things of of today, beginning with verse 18. We are to show what it means to call Jesus Lord. That's as simple as I can put it. We are to show what it means to call Jesus Lord. And of course, we would begin with probably one of the most controversial exhortations in Scripture, at least to the modern ear. Uh, Paul has written on this very thing in Ephesians 5.21 through chapter 6, verse 4. And I I encourage you, we won't look at it this morning, but it's a much broader um, picturing of the husband-wife relationship. And and he grounds that exhortation in in one's own self-concern as a man. You know, no one abuses his own body but treats it with care, etc. So Paul is here, you might say, just putting bullet points. But it's the bullet points that we have. And just a couple observations because we're going to go through home and family, husband and wife, children uh, and parents. We're going to look at the workplace, etc. That, that recognizing that for Paul, in fact, in fact, for the entire biblical context, the notion of submissiveness is at the center. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul says there in verse 21 of Ephesians 5. That's, that's how he begins the conversation there. He doesn't do that here, but it's in the forefront of his thinking. And it applies to everyone. Instead of being a barrier to effective, adequate relationships. Thank you very much, Karen. Wesley didn't leave me a bottle up here, so... But, but there's this notion of submissiveness that is foundational in, in the biblical material. If you think about it, Jesus, though being equal with God, says Paul, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, but instead submitted himself even to the point of death. So if Jesus can be equal with God and submissive to God at the same time, then, then quite obviously equality and submission are not at odds. There, there's no battle between, well, I'm either equal to you or I submit to you. It can't be both. Jesus was in submission to the Father, and yet he was equal with the Father. And so we, we are called to that same kind of understanding as we look at this. One, one commentator puts it this way. The New Testament teaches a subordinationist. There you go, there's a good word. The New Testament teaches a subordinationist ethic. This, according to the biblical testimony, is the only way in which human society can work without disintegration. To announce that the modern man cannot accept this, which many do, is unhelpful and misleading, said the commentator, since it is evident that sinful human nature has never liked it, no matter what century. We need to remember that. We need to remember that. Sinful human nature has never liked subordinationism, no matter what century. So to say, well, that just doesn't fly in the modern world, you're like, okay. Didn't fly in the ancient one either, but Paul still preached it there, didn't he? Uh, We need that kind of subordinationist understanding of the world in which we live, of the way God has made this world for us to live in. 
And, and if we have more confidence in the apostolic authority, if we, if we believe that, that what we read here in this book is God's given revealed word, then, then we have a foundation or a ground or a context within which and by which we can judge the attitudes of our current age. Otherwise, we'll just swept away on a tide of what people today think. I think it was Lewis who called it the, um, the dictatorship of the living. You know, that just because you're alive doesn't make you a majority. You know, history has something to say about the issues that we address today. So Paul's teaching is a word for our times. And I just want to look at these things briefly. There's a number of them. We'll follow. Wives submit to your husbands. And again, what does submit mean? Well, it, it's not servile uh, bondage. I mean, I kind of joke with Kathy, um, and there at times, shut up, Irma Jean, and get in the pickup. <laughs> that, that's supposed to end all discussion, right? Well, uh, I'm saying it in, in jest, and we do at home, but, you know, that's not what submission means. Shut up, Irma Jean, and get in the pickup. No, that, that's not what we're talking about at all. Uh, one illustration comes to mind. <clears throat> Uh, in Tom Clancy's book, A Clear and Present Danger, the story is about an uh, American special forces group that's trained, sent in the jungles in Central America to uh, disrupt, interrupt, and destroy the drug trade. And part of that is to blow up uh, chemical labs as they find them. Well, they're successful in their first couple uh, encounters. And then on the third or fourth one, they lose one of the members of their team uh, in a firefight, and he's killed. And, and Clancy talks about the situation as the lieutenant who had been working with them for the months of training in the Colorado mountains and the preparation for the mission and obviously the first few weeks of the mission in the Central American country. And, and the lieutenant is absolutely devastated by the death of one of his guys. And, and the chief sergeant and the master sergeant calls him aside and says, look, lieutenant, We'll call him Joe. I can take Joe's pack and I can give it to somebody else. I can take Joe's watch responsibilities. I can give them to somebody else. I can take Joe's task within you know, the mission and give them to somebody else. What I can't give to somebody else is the responsibility of leadership. If, if this destroys you, Lieutenant, the mission is destroyed. Now, it's a very graphic you know, scene in Clancy's novel, but it's, it's expressive, I think, of what Paul is saying, is that there is an order built into the way we relate to one another. And, and if you object to the order, in essence, you're objecting to the mission. And the mission that Paul is seeking here as he begins is to build within the Christian family the foundation of life out into the world. And so as he begins, wives submit to your husbands, the the benefit of that, if you will, is that it is fitting in the Lord. In other words, a Christian woman's relationship to her husband is an expression of what it means to call Jesus Lord in her situation, if you will. You know, the lieutenant has a responsibility, and only he can carry it out. The wife has a responsibility that only she can carry out. And within the context of that day, as, as wives strangely enough, are addressed first here. You go, wait a minute, if, if husbands are so all-important, why aren't husbands addressed first? Because Paul is saying, look, women have been granted an incredible freedom in Christ that they do not have, did not have, in the broader context of, of the society of his day. And so he addresses them within that context to say, 
What does it mean to call Christ Lord as a married woman in this society? Answer, submit to your husband because it is fitting in the Lord. But this is not a one-way street. It's a two-way. And he goes immediately to husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, the Greek world may have known the phrase to love, but it didn't apply to marriage. That wasn't indicative of the relationship between a husband and wife, to, to love. So the rules for a household didn't include loving the wife. And when Paul says, husbands, love your wives, he is making a dramatic both, both proclamation as well as command within the context of the culture. Husbands don't love wives. What are you talking about? Husbands are supposed to rule wives. Paul says, no. Husbands are to love wives. And in order to prove that you love her, do not be harsh with her. See, the, the practical test is there. You want to show that you love your wife? You want to show that you're being obedient to Jesus? No more shut up, Irma, and get in the pickup. No more of that. That's not a part of a husband's role with his wife in a Christian marriage. So Paul has addressed wives and husbands both, saying you have a mutual responsibility. One is to submit, one is to love. And as he unfolds there in Ephesians, you know, the, the foundation of a husband's love for his wife is that they are one flesh, and, and no one abuses his own flesh. Paul says, that's silly. If you don't do that to yourself, why would you do that to the one who is one flesh with you? So, so please, you know, read Ephesians 5, 21 and following in, in getting a broader sense of what Paul is saying here. But he moves on then. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now here again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but you notice there's a test. Okay, you children love Jesus? That's great. Let me see how your obedience is in the family. Because that's the mark of whether you really love Jesus. If Jesus is Lord, children, obey your parents. One commentator says, in biblical history, spoiled children rarely learn to serve God. You know, if, if you are brought up in a home which makes the child the king, it's very difficult for the child when they're older to be submissive to the world around them. Spoilt children really learn to, sub, to serve God. But again, he doesn't stay there long. He goes immediately, fathers, don't provoke your children. And I think we all know that. Encouragement builds up, criticism tears down. There are children, unfortunately, today who have been raised in, in homes and family systems where they are abused, misused, unused even. The potential of a child is not brought out. The joy of a child is not encouraged. That, that children are let either alone or they are simply under a heavy hand. And Paul says, in the same way that husbands are to love wives, fathers are not to provoke their children. You say, well, why doesn't he say anything to wives? Because it's usually the dads that set the tone in the household. And if the dad is, is dictatorial, irritable, you know, given to anger or whatever, the children will suffer more from that than from mom. And on the other hand, you can refuse this. You can refuse to be submissive. You can refuse to love. You can refuse to obey. You can refuse to, to be encouraging. And what will be the result? It'll be a broken family system. 
And that broken family system will not serve God's purposes or even the benefit of those who are members of it. You know, what can take the place of a healthy Christian family? The answer is nothing, nothing at all. And so Paul has addressed that. We've talked about in chapter 3 sort of the rules, the guidelines for developing unity in a congregation. Here he talks about the, the rules for happy Christian living as a family. And then he goes on in verse 22 to what I think we can rightfully say today would be a work situation. But in its context, it was about slaves. Bond servants or slaves obey in everything those who are your masters. Now, now Paul gets criticized for not sort of taking on the social structures of his day. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, any of you who have seen Les Mis, you know, as all these young boys and, you know, young revolutionaries in France go to the barricades, you know, the ending of that effort is empty chairs and empty tables. There is then nothing but death and destruction in the train of that action. And as much as we might laud it from, from an idealistic point of view, practically it accomplished nothing. It ended in the death of so many young men and even women. And, and so Paul, rather than saying, okay, slaves to the barricades, let's throw off the yoke of Romans, says, no, in, in this situation where you are, here's what you can do. Obey in everything your masters, verse, end of verse 22, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, what are you doing? You're, you're free now to give all your energy, not to the master directly, but to Jesus. And when you serve Jesus, you are set free. You're free from having to please men, as he says in, in verse 22. Serve not by way of eye service as a people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart. You can, you can do the job, verse 23, working heartily as for the Lord. You now have a new boss, a better boss. I mean, those of you who've worked in, you know, in the marketplace, in the business world, know the difference between a good one and a bad one. You know, and maybe at some point you were one or the other. You might have been the good boss or the bad boss, and hopefully if you were a bad boss, you became a good one. But the point here is that the slave no longer has that man as his ultimate boss. He's just the intermediary through which the slave, the bondservant, serves the Lord. So slaves obey your masters with sincerity, fearing the Lord, and work hardly as for the Lord because you know, verse 24, that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then he says in verse 25, For the wrongdoer will be paid for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You know, you, you get your paycheck and you go, Is that all I get for what I've given this week? You know, I'm being cheated. And there's been enormous periods in not just world history, but American history where that was the case. You know, you're, you load 16 ton and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And that whole organizational arrangement was absolutely oppressive. And, and it used people's labors and kept them in slavery. And Paul says, look, don't worry about what's in this paycheck. What's in the ultimate paycheck? For a day is coming when every wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. No partiality. And so before we leave bond servants, we'll just say this. 
Don't just say, aha, someday you're going to get it, buddy. You look at your boss and, you know, under your breath, you go, hmm, you're going to get yours. And as you walk away, think about, and I'll get mine too. I'll get my, you know, every paper clip that made its way home, you know, every pencil, every extra hour on the clock, all of those things that, well, we just sort of do because that's what it is to work here. Those also will be judged and paid back. I can remember the summer I worked in the steel mill. It was quite an eye-opener. You know, growing up on a farm, there are always chores to be done, and you need to do the chores, right? But a steel mill, if you came in, punched in at, you know, I worked 11 to 7. If you punched in at 11 o'clock, maybe about a quarter to 12, you'd wander around to where your workstation was. And, you know, the 20-minute coffee break ended up to be 40 minutes of playing cards, and the half-hour lunch break was usually an hour. And in the morning when the shift was over at 7, guys were lined up at 6.30 with their time cards waiting for it to go click at 7 and then punch out. Well, they don't pay me enough to work hard. Well, yeah, but they're paying you to work, and you're not. Every wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. And if we're working for Jesus, we want to work honestly, wholeheartedly to please him. But then, of course, in verse one of chapter four, Paul says, Masters, treat your bond servants justly. Now now the notion in Paul's day that that slave owners, masters, would have any responsibility at all to their slaves, their servants was like, What are you talking about? You know, I own him. But Paul says, No, if you are a Christian master, you have a master in heaven. Don't forget that. As you deal with those around you, you need to recognize that while they work for you, you work for one higher. And therefore, verse 25 will apply to you as well. You will be paid back if you hold back wages, if you mistreat your servants, if you cheat uh, them out of fair wages, then you too will be judged. Paul's concern, there's just two things I want to do to sum up this part. His, his concern is twofold. One, it's not pie in the sky, by and by. Paul seeks to bring the gospel and its impact to the here and now. What does the slave need who is incapable of overthrowing the Roman yoke or the Greek yoke, whichever? What does that servant need? He needs a hope in his circumstances. He needs the, the promised inheritance, if you will, that is coming to him. And it's that which Paul presents, that, that is finally, there is fulfillment to be had here and now, and not just then. And secondly, of course, that, that it's not man's relationship with his fellows, it's, it's man's relationship with God that's Paul's concern. That's, that's why he has preached as he has done. That's why he has set Jesus forward as he has done. That's why he brings each of these areas of responsibility back to the Lord. It's fitting in the Lord. It pleases the Lord. It's unto the Lord. It's with gratitude to the Lord. It is the Lord Christ whom we are to serve. That's what it means to make Jesus Lord. And so Paul finishes here, um, you might say, with our relationships with the world. That was the workplace. We talked about the church. We talked about the family. We talked about the workplace. Now in verses 2 through 6, Paul talks about the world outside. And I'm going to break it in two parts, as as one of the commentators did. Verses 2 through 4, speaking to God about people. And verses 5 and 6, speaking to people about God. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Okay, that's the number one responsibility for you and me as believers. What do we do? We, 
we in essence entreat heaven as the uh, as the woman entreated the unrighteous judge. You know, we, we wear down the doors of heaven, so to speak, with our prayers. For what? For the world around us to see the light of the gospel, for, for hard hearts to be softened, for, for ears that are stopped up and, and minds that are closed and eyes that are blind to be open, to see, to hear, to understand, to receive the goodness of God. And Paul says, pray to that end. And while you're praying, he says, pray for us. Now, this is interesting. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word. Where's Paul? At the end of verse 3, I'm in prison. Paul doesn't say, pray for the prison doors to open up, which is what I would pray for. No, pray for the door for the word to open up. I'm here in prison. So, I want an open door for the gospel, not for me. And I want you all to pray about that. And, and then pray as well that... that as I have opportunity to speak, to preach, that I would make the word clear. And the commentator makes a very significant point that I think is important for us to to understand. That there are those called to the ministry of the word. You know, I was called and ordained as a pastor, minister of the word. In, In our Presbyterian circles, those are called teaching elders. And the elders who will be serving communion are ruling elders. But as teaching elders, we have a responsibility in the word that is not laid upon the congregation as a whole. You're not expected to go to seminary. You're not expected to take Greek and Hebrew. These are things that are part of the responsibility of being here before you. And and so that's what we are to do. But then Paul says, for y'all, walk in wisdom toward outsiders Making the best use of time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you know how to answer. It was interesting. I was talking with a a young woman recently who was expressing significant frustration over the fact that, you know, she was meeting new neighbors and and they just didn't want to hear the gospel. And I'm thinking, it just moved here. You know, Uh, have you gotten involved in PTA or any other kids in Little League? You you know, what's the nature of the communal life into which you have been introduced? And, And why is it that you're not clued in on that, that that you have to like bring the gospel and then, you know, they just don't have anything to do with me. I'm thinking maybe, as Paul says here, you need to have gracious speech seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought not to speak to each person, but how to answer. Um, Pain will manifest itself in human life. None of us are made so that pain doesn't show. Some of us are a little stiffer, a little harder. It takes longer for pain to get out. Pain will out in human lives. And when that pain does out, it'll bring forth a cry. A cry of, of wonder, a cry of despair, a cry of frustration. But, but a cry. And when you hear that cry, then you can answer that question. But until then, those hard hearts and those closed minds and those, you know, stopped up ears are not interested in what you have to say. And I think for many of us, we're, we're like, if I don't get you saved tonight, you know, you may die tomorrow. Well, that may be true, but God's in charge of that, isn't he? What am I in charge of? Well, I'm in charge of my time. I need to make good use of it. I'm in charge of my speech. I need to be gracious with it. And I'm in charge of listening so I know how to answer people. 
That's, that's what I can do. Walk in wisdom, making the best use of time. So, so Paul, in this passage that I have called True Spirituality, has reflected on what it means to know Jesus. He has grounded that relationship with Jesus in all of the other realms of our lives, from, from our local church to our family to our workplace to the world around us. And he has said, there's where your resolve, your resolutions of a new year need to be reflected. In, in being truly spiritual, to be a, a real human being, that is one made in the image of God to reflect his glory, to, to have grace and humility with others, to be in Christ a person of, of holiness and of hope, and ultimately, of course, of joy. We, we reflect the God in whose image we are made and by whose grace we're redeemed when we resolve to live in true spirituality. So that would be my challenge. Make that your New Year's resolution each and every day. Reflect Jesus to the world around you and trust the Lord who has saved you to save all those whom he has called. Let's bow together. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that we can know you and having life in you, we are enabled to shine as lights in the darkness of this world. Uh, Lord, give us uh, deep and abiding grace, hearts of gratitude, and then of compassion, that even as Jesus looked upon the crowds and had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so too may we look upon this world around us and pray for it, and seek to serve it, and most of all, to live before it, as befits those who are your own, made to serve you with joy and gladness until Jesus returns. We, we await that day, even as we look forward to this new year, in hope and in joy. In Jesus' name, amen.